0: Welcome back, everyone. This is The Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 161. And on today's show, we got Ilya Gregor joining us today. He's an internet plumber, as he said before, working at Google, working on the HTTP2 spec. Uh, the precursor to this was known as Speedy, so if you've played with Speedy whatsoever, you know what, what uh, H2 is all about or what it's, what it's proposed to be about. The spec is finalized. we talked deeply about it this whole conversation is the definitive conversation around H2 and what it's all about. Binary binary framing layer, uh, pipelining, multiplexing, header compression, also known as HPAC, server push, TLS, time to glass, upgrading, support, adoption, you name it, we covered it. This is the definitive conversation around the H2 spec. We have three awesome sponsors. Code Ship, Code School and also Dream Host. Our first sponsor is Codeship. They're a hosted, continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up Codeship in your app in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy your code when your tests have passed. Codeship supports your GitHub and your Bitbucket project, so no worries there. And you can get started today with their free plan, or you can go with a premium plan and stay at 20% off using our code It'll save you twenty percent off any plan you choose. for Three months. Use the code the Change Law Podcast. Head to codechip. slash the Change Law to get started. And now on to the show. All right, Jared, we're back. We got Ilya, the internet plumber himself, on here. Third time on He's this back. show. What do you think? What do you think, Jared?
1: I think three times puts him into an elite group of people
0: that's right smoking jacket and all (laughs) yes previously on episode 55 episode 144 back in february we talked about github archive Ilya. we talked about nightly which was his turn into changelog nightly um pretty pretty fun stuff everybody's enjoying that nightly email that we've been shipping out but uh welcome back to the show Ilya.
2: thanks thanks for inviting me back it's always fun chatting with you guys
0: And uh, today's show is all about HTTP2, which will be a tongue twister for me. I don't know about you, Ilya, but do you get tired of saying HTTP2, 1, whatever?
2: Oh, tongue-tied? I I think every other sentence I say contains HTTP, so (laughs) I don't notice it anymore.
0: Have you found a way to say it faster or more, I don't know, that people can actually understand it other than geeks?
2: Well... If, if you're talking to geeks, you can actually say just H2, which is a valid name uh, for the ALPN upgrade token, which we'll talk about at some point.
1: <laughs> H2, I like that. That is a lot easier to say.
0: H2 is a lot easier, better than HTTP2. And even when I'm trying to say it just well, I, I still stumble over it. But, anyways, so, you know, welcome back. To the, do you want to give another introduction for those who may not know who you are? I know you were on 55 and 144, and we talked heavily about who you are, and you describe yourself as an internet plumber at Google. So anything else you want to add to that?
2: No, I think that's, that's pretty much it. So I, I work on the developer relations team at Google. Uh, in particular, I focus on web performance. So I work very closely with the Chrome team. And as of late, I've been doing uh, lots of work in the web performance uh, working group. So trying to define and improve existing APIs in the browser to... Cloud developers to build better applications. And uh, H2 is not related to the WebPerf group. It's part of the IETF effort, but it's definitely something that was a big effort within Chrome. Um, we'll talk about Speedy, of course, and something that I've been uh, very passionate about.
0: And I, I, I guess since this show is all about H2, since you've cracked that nut, we can say that, which saves me some stumbling. But if we're going to talk about H2, then we've got to go back and talk about H1 and uh, talk about the history of this spec that we've been living in, and since you've you've been hanging out in that area, what's the best way to talk about the basics of what the original spec was and how it turned into Speedy and how it turned eventually into
2: H two? Sure. So I'll I'll try to keep it uh, brief, but as you said, it's good to kind of rewind the uh, the time clock and understand how we got to where we are today. Right. Um, And of course, everything starts with uh, HTTP 0.9, which is uh, Tim Berners-Lee basically creates this very simple protocol. It's literally one line that says get, you you give it the name of the resource, you hit enter, and you get back a resource. All right, so this is about uh, 93, 94. And the idea was, I just want to retrieve a text document, because that's what it's supposed to be, HTTP, right? Hypertext Transfer Protocol. Right. Um, Then after that, uh, this web thing became kind of popular and people figured that hey um we would like to actually fetch other things uh as well so you know somebody had this crazy idea of putting images into a document and other people started inventing other mechanisms to style things like style sheets and then of course later we got javascript and we started kind of building up these use cases and we also realized that uh it's nice to be able to say like cache a resource instead of having to fetch it all the time so all of these use cases were emerging from the community there wasn't an official effort around it like a working group or an itf effort now this was basically just people picking up http and just building servers and just saying like hey i dreamt up with this cool feature caching Um, so here it is and then other um, browser and server implementers would just kind of pick and choose and say like okay i like this feature and whatnot and the way we arrived at http 1.0 which was uh in 1997 uh it was it wasn't actually an official standard in the sense that somebody sat down and wrote everything from beginning to an end. Rather, it was a document that tried to capture the existing best practices. So in the period of like four years, starting from when HTTP uh, first came out, when Tim Berners-Lee first introduced it to like four years later, there was just a lot of emergent behavior. And in HTTP 1.0, we tried to just like document it. And that's, that's all it was. There wasn't even like a large attempt to rationalize it all. It was just like, here are the best practices that you'll find on a common web server today. So that's, and then, that's point
0: 0.9. Is that going into 1.0 and everything?
2: Right. So that, that that's what became 1.0, effectively, right? Okay. 1.0 was an attempt to capture, like, the best practices and the common usage patterns on the web. Um, and then once we did that uh, in, with 1.0, there was a second effort, which was 1.1, which took another about two years or so uh, to actually go back and start, like, cleaning up the spec. So to introduce... Common language, common terms um, into the spec such that it becomes kind of rational and more easier to implement for uh, new servers and, and user agents. And effectively, uh, when HTTP one point one came out, which is in nineteen ninety nine, uh, that's you know that's the web that, that's the HTTP protocol rather that we've built the web on. So there was that initial burst of creativity. We captured it. We kind of cleaned it up, and then we just kind of left it there. And as you are well aware, if you think about if you've been online in 1999 and then you've visited the web recently, the web is very different, right? So we have uh, not just pages, they're full-out applications. We have video. We have all kinds of interesting things happening on the web. And uh, during this time, the web was evolving, but the HTTP protocol basically stayed where it was. And uh, in around uh, 2007 or 2008, um, The Chrome team, uh, when we were working on Chrome, uh, realized that as we were building uh, the the browser, uh, that the protocol had a number of deficiencies, which didn't allow us to build and present the pages as quickly as we wanted to the user. Uh, So there was this new effort, kind of a bunch of studies that we started under the name of Speedy, uh, which was around experimenting with the protocol, the HTTP protocol, uh, and trying to figure out what kind of changes we would have to make to the protocol to address some of the limitations, and specifically, one of the challenges with HTTP has been the fact that uh, it's a uh, it's a serialized request response protocol. In the sense that if I send if I have a connection and I send a request and say, "Hey, I would like to get the index.html file," you have to wait uh, until you get the full response back before you can reuse that connection to ask for a second thing. Which may not seem like a big problem, and it wasn't really a problem back in the '90s when all you were fetching is a document and maybe a couple of resources. Uh, but now, an average page is fetching over 100 resources, which are things like images, JavaScript, CSS, and all the other stuff. And now that you have 100 resources and you have to do this in serial, it becomes a bottleneck. So, you know, th- there's workarounds for that, of course. You just open more connections. But it turns out that's also not great because if you open too many connections, it can actually hurt user experience because now you run into troubles with congestion control and. Opening unbounded number of connections may uh, hurt the server that you're trying to talk to. So, re- realistically, we have to cap that. And uh, c- kind of through experimental uh, deployments, we uh, we and other browsers determined that kind of arbitrarily six connections per origin is the optimal number. So, what that means is, with HTTP one, you can fetch up to six resources in parallel, uh, which kind of worked, you know, in between. 2000 and 2007, but in 2007 we realized that that's not sufficient. Like this does not scale. Clearly, uh, developers are putting more and more resources. They're building more ambitious applications, and to do and to fix this issue, we need to kind of rethink the the protocol. And that was effectively the uh, inception of Speedy. And uh, Speedy tried to change some of the basics of how messages are exchanged within HTTP uh, to address this thing talk yeah
0: totally so when you talk about the connections and limiting that that's why we get things like um you know sprite for example with images that's why you have you know all of your uh websites images in one single file so you can just sort of sprite around and use c s s to move that as a background image that's where you get practices like concatenating a job all you know seven or eight different javascript files that support your your site to operate down into one and that's where you get all these sort of Uh, I guess workarounds to get into this six, you know, this glorified six number where you guys have figured out that that's the best number to to focus on.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a really good point. So we call these things like concatenation and uh, as optimizations today, right? Like bundle all your JavaScript files into app.js or, you know, use an asset pipeline to create this thing on the fly for you. And really, it's exactly as you pointed out, it's a workaround. It's a workaround for the fact that HTTP provides limited parallelism or lack of parallelism, if you want to call it that. Uh, so we've been forced down this path of doing things like spriting images and concatenating files, which actually has a lot of negative uh, side effects. So, for example, say you take, say you have, you know, you've developed a beautiful application which is modular and has. Uh, Everything, all the logic is split into different files, and you, like, you it's just a well-engineered software project, right? And uh, now you want to ship it to the client so they can execute it. Well, today, in order to do that, the best practice, uh, in the air quotes there, is that you put all of those files into one giant application.js, and you ship it to the user. Now, moments later, you realize that, hey, I made a mistake, or maybe I need to update something, so you change a single character or single byte in that one file, and now the user has to re-download the entire file, right? So you changed one byte and you have to download the whole thing all over again, which of course is expensive data-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also slows down your application because now you have to download this giant thing when you only changed one little part of it. And um, this is just not a good a user experience. So uh, these these best practices or these optimizations like cat, uh, concatenation actually prevent us from deploying effective caching strategies. and the reason we were willing to put up with that in the past is precisely because the, uh, the latency trade-off of like, this, uh, this constraint of lack of parallelism was so bad that we just kind of brushed, it the, brushed the caching concerns under the, under the rug and said, that's okay, we'll just redownload it all over again.
0: And so all this led into what was kicked off by Google, trademarked by Google even, uh, Speedy, S P D Y. It's not an acronym, but it looks like it might be. And were you a part of the team when this kicked off originally? Like you are the founder of this project, or what part did you originally play when Speedy?
2: No, I actually came in after the project got started. So okay. uh, I think it's actually interesting to talk about um, why it started in the first place. And uh, it all came down to this one experiment, uh, which was done by a couple of engineers um, on the Chrome team. And what they tried to do was they took I think the top 100 websites uh, they and, and they try to simulate what would happen in terms of the loading performance of those websites if we varied bandwidth and latency independently so say you have a one megabit connection and then you load all the pages and you just measure the how long it took to load each page and then you double that to two megabits and you measure that again and see if there was a difference right like intuitively you would expect or you would hope rather that Going from one to two would make things significantly faster because you can just download a lot more stuff more quickly. So they they kept increasing that bandwidth, and then separately they ran the same experiment for latency. So if we just keep uh, increasing or decreasing latency from let's say hundred milliseconds to two hundred milliseconds, what's the impact? And the thing that they realized was that after about five megabits per second, which is uh, more than uh, the average uh, broadband connection speed in the United States, so basically if you're on broadband in the United States or in most other countries, you already exceed that 5 megabits. Upgrading from 5 to, say, 10 megabits will only give you, like, single percentage point improvement in the page loading speed. Wow. And that's... So a lot new- of people
0: are spending too much on, the inter- on their internet, too, potentially to not get a faster
1: web. <laughs> not because they're watching right. Netflix. <laughs> oh, that's why. Right,
2: well, that's, that's a good point, right? So there, there, is, there is some type of traffic on the web that is bandwidth-constrained. So these large streams like video are definitely bandwidth constraints. So if you want to watch HD video, yeah, please go ahead and get yourself a you know, 100 megabit connection. Uh, but upgrading from, let's say, a 5 megabit to a 100 megabit connection does not or will not significantly improve your browsing experience, uh-huh. which is kind of sad, right, <laughs> if you think about it. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, because you don't see you know, ISPs uh, marketing their, you know, their round-trip times or their latency. All right. they're given is bandwidth. So you can't just go buy better latency, right?
2: Well, yeah, and and therein therein is the the actual rub here, right? So repeating the same experiment with uh, changing latency, they saw a linear performance improvement. As in, the lower the latency, there's there's a very direct correlation between lower latency and improving the uh, performance. So if you actually, rather, performance of loading websites or browsing the web. So if you really want to have a faster experience of browsing the web, you should find a connection that has the lowest latency. But as you said, I'm not aware of a single ISP out there that is actually advertising this sort of thing in their marketing, right? Uh, which is a whole other discussion that we should have at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of that, of course, out of their control, right? The, there's a lot of factors that play into latency. Um, and they're just one player uh, in a game of, you know, in a, what is effectively like a mesh network. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, that's true. There, there are many hops between you and the server. And yeah. the ISP is perhaps the first couple of hops. In practice, it turns out that ISPs, or the the last mile, as we call it, hmm. um, can contribute a significant amount of latency. So um, that's typically because the area is under-provisioned. So everybody starts watching Netflix, and all of a sudden there's not enough capacity, and latency suffers, and all, all these things happen. So there's definitely a lot that carriers can do to improve this sort of thing, but you know that's it, that's probably a whole separate discussion. So the, the outcome of this whole experiment was basically the realization that uh, the web is not going to get faster unless we either decrease latency, which you know, we, we can't as as an outsider, or we re-examine our protocols and figure out what is it that prevents us from utilizing the bandwidth in a better way. And uh, one way to improve latency is to like pipeline requests. Right? So instead of serializing every request one after the other, what if we were able to just say, well, I need these 50 resources, so let me just send you all 50 requests at the same time. HTTP does not allow us to do this, uh, but what if it could? And that was effectively the premise for SPD. It's Like, what do we need to do to change the protocol to allow that sort of thing? And further, if we're going down this path, we also know that uh, as the web has evolved and uh, we've put more and more different kinds of resources, these resources have different priorities. So for example, if I send you 50 resources, the HTML file is very, very important to me. And the image file is important, but not as important as HTML. So it'd be kind of nice if I could communicate that to the server and say, here's 50 resources, but I, would, I could really use your help on getting the HTML file first, because that allows me to display something to the user. So uh, HTTP also, or HTTP 1, rather, does not allow you to do that, HTTP 2 does. Uh, and then there's other use cases like dependencies. Uh, let's say you are trying to stream a video file. It, it'd be kind of silly for uh, the server to send you a frame, uh, a subsequent frame before uh, it was able to send you the first frame ahead of it. Right? It's like, I don't want the second frame before I can get the, the first one. So there's some notion in there of saying, like, uh, here's two requests, but please deliver the other request or the response after you've sent me the first one. and Kind of between all of this, uh, that was the foundation of Speedy. And uh, that started in around 2008. Uh, We ran some experiments. We saw some significant improvements in terms of uh, the actual performance. So at first, we were actually able to deploy it or implement the first version in Chrome. And we also implemented uh, the server portion on some Google servers. And we ran an experiment where we opted in some users into using Speedy. And uh, there were significant uh, performance improvements for those users for the users that we saw uh, that were using speedy and so, this was
0: mainly on like document based sites not so much like video based sites or these non web based sites like non document sites
2: um, no 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 it wasn't it, it wasn't that specific, uh, we saw improvements across the board just because we were able to remove these bottlenecks, uh, but it is true that uh, the biggest benefits were typically for uh, sites that had a lot of requests because now we were able to pipeline and eliminate these unnecessary um, latencies like queuing latencies and head of line blocking.
0: We're definitely getting into HTTP2 landscape here. Is there anything else on Speedy we should cover in terms of like, you know, as the precursor, it, it was the originating experiment to get to what is now the H2 spec, so is there anything else we need to cover on Speedy to to sort of migrate into talking deeply about H2? Um,
2: I think we covered the main points. I guess I'll just say that uh, Speedy was meant as an experiment, and uh, with time, because we did see um, good improvements in performance, it was actually becoming well-adopted outside of Google. So uh, we had Firefox that enabled Speedy as well in their browser. Uh, Safari announced that they will support it. I think it was from Safari 9. Um, IE also added support for Speedy. So in effect, it was becoming a de facto protocol. And uh, similarly, server support was emerging. So there was uh, Apache, Nginx, and other servers that were all supporting it. And uh, kind of on the, on the basis of that, the HTTP working group uh, said, well, look, the, clearly there's something here, so uh, let's uh, start an effort to modernize HTTP. And they did a call for proposals. Um, Google and others submitted their proposals. Google submitted uh, the Speedy protocol. And after a couple of rounds of, kind of discussions and feedback, the, the Speedy spec was adopted as a, as a basis or as a starting point for the HTTP2 protocol. Uh, and then from that point forward, as HTTP2 development proceeded, uh, Speedy was also being developed, but it was effectively kind of like an experimental branch where uh, we were able to prototype new ideas, Kind of test them, see if they pan out, and then that feedback would get merged into HTTP two. So that's kind of the history, and uh so HTTP two development started in around, uh, I think it was two thousand eleven.
1: Before we get into that, I do have kind of a big picture question around the uh, the idea of replacing, you know, the current application layer protocol HTTP with mm-hmm. something better. Um, the goal being to make the web faster, reduce latency. You know, networked computers, you know, have lots of different technologies at play. Um, mm-hmm. The network stack, for for those who aren't quite familiar with the networking side, has many layers, uh, depending on how you look at it. There's seven or five. And uh, regardless of the way you look at it, HTTP is that, you know, that top layer. That's the application layer where mm-hmm. uh, developers kind of play and, and integrates with with your apps and whatnot. Um Below that, you know, there's the session layer where you have your encrypted connections. There's transport layer. This is where, you know, TCP and UDP are often used. And then you have your IP layer, which we're most familiar with, IP addresses and whatnot. Was there efforts to swap out lower down to say, well, maybe TCP is not the best way to deliver the web? And um, was there research that went into that? Were there efforts that are trying to do that or have tried to do that?
2: Funny that you ask. Uh, yes, uh, even at the very beginning, back in kind of 2007, uh, we knew that we would probably need to solve problems at multiple layers. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it didn't make sense to try to tackle everything at once. Right? I think that would have been just too much to bite off. Yeah. So initially, the focus was on HTTP. So what can we do to solve that? And then once we unblock those issues... Uh, we will immediately run into the performance issues at the layer below. And that in particular here, this would be the question about TCP. Like uh-huh. We've solved issues at the application layer of HTTP. We removed head-of-line blocking. But it turns out that TCP also has its own uh, failure modes with head-of-line blocking. And uh, now there's actually a different effort within, uh, within Chrome called Quick, which is effectively, uh, think of it as HTTP2 over UDP. There's some other things. Uh, but it's an experiment that we're working on now, which is using UDP to mitigate some of these issues that we're uh, that we running into within TCP. But that's probably a whole other episode on, yeah. on this <laughs> one. <old. laughs> cool.
0: So long story short, there, there are some, you know, ancillary efforts that aren't just sitting at the application layer. They're going further down like the, the TCP layer, the transport layer, as Jared mentioned, that's kind of hanging out there or the UDP layer.
2: That's right. Yeah. And uh, TCP continues to improve, right? So there is there's lots of work happening uh, in all parts of the stack.
1: Mm-hmm. I also think that it seems like the further down you go, the the more tightly integrated into the operating systems that you are, and so perhaps more difficult even as a uh, a wide uh, you know as far as adoption goes as a rollout. You know we see how IPv6 you know uh, mm-hmm. still not out there in droves. Um, over years and years uh, of it being, you know, pretty much done, I guess, or available, so perhaps starting at the top and working your way down is even the most effective way to to do it. So that makes some sense. Um, we're getting into the transition between Speedy and H two. Um, you covered a little bit of how Speedy was being adopted. Can you maybe reiterate, reiterate, or at least tell us why why the need? to you know move away from speedy as a thing and and uh, and do the h2 thing instead
2: sure so the intent to the intent here was to standardize on on a protocol right so to bring in we came up with some ideas within speedy for how to address the particular issues that we thought were important to move the web forward in terms of performance um, then you take that to ITF and there's just a lot more people around the table with different kinds of experiences, different perspectives on what is important. And that, that was the intent uh, uh-huh. behind taking it to to ITF and that's the intent of ITF. And that's where HTTP2 was developed. So over the period of about two years, there was uh, 14 drafts, 14 kind of big milestones along the way uh, that we went through. And uh, now actually uh, back in May, so about a month ago now, uh, these specs have been officially published. So there's actually two specs. One is the HTTP/2 uh, specification, and another one is the HPAC or the the header compression uh, specification, uh, which we can we actually haven't talked about this yet, but we can uh, in a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I guess one thing I'll mention here is uh, you kind of hinted at this um, a little bit earlier. Modifying something as big as HTTP uh, is a big task. Right? And I think this is why, to some degree, uh, it took us so long to get to this point because there's so much built on HTTP that any thought of trying to modify it uh, would be like a, a, just a huge undertaking. So, one interesting uh, point to keep in mind with HTTP/2 is that HTTP/2 does not actually modify any of the semantics of the HTTP protocol. So the headers, uh, the header names the methods, kind of your, all your restful stuff, um, all of that is exactly the same. And that is intentional. So in fact, some people criticize HTTP2 for not tackling some of the higher level issues that they think should be addressed in HTTP2. But mm-hmm. that was explicitly out of scope when the when we chartered the whole HTTP2 effort, because we knew that there's so much that we could do. Uh, but we wanted to focus on kind of this low level performance and framing. So any application that you have today that runs over HTTP, you can put that over HTTP two, and everything will work as is because nothing has changed semantically. And I think this is very, very important. Whether uh, we should modify some other things, kind of like semantics, of HTTP is now beyond that, right? And that, that's like now that we finished HTTP two, we can now start that discussion.
0: So it's backwards compatible in 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 many ways. What you're trying to say?
2: Uh, that's right. Right. So. Uh, you can deploy, like, you'll have to swap out the server, because it'll need to understand HTTP2, but you don't have right. to modify your application. Like, there's there's nothing about your application that will, like, be HTTP2 incompatible. Now, that said, there are things that you can do within your application to make it perform better over HTTP2, but that's a very different discussion, right? Yeah. Like, this is the, uh, coming back to your earlier point, like, you were concatenating files, well, perhaps you shouldn't do that now, because it actually hurts performance
0: yeah, we were just talking about that actually in the last show we were talking about that, and it was sort of the discussion of things that have become in quotes what we said earlier, which was have become best practices around you know the HTTP1 spec that you're doing not to concatenate and you know all that stuff, and now that might not be a good thing since it's you have different things for like pipelining or multiplex and it can support that better now,
1: right, exactly. The problem with that, I guess, and where it gets complicated, of course, I'm an application developer, so I'm always thinking about like how does it complicate my workflows and stuff, and and like that sounds great as far as HTTP 2 actually simplifies my workflow because I don't need to do all that stuff anymore. But it's not like h ones going anywhere anytime soon, right? So we're still gonna have to support both for you know for years to come. Um, let's do this. Let's get a high level overview because we haven't actually talked about. What it brings to the table, we know what it's trying to do, which is improve mm-hmm. performance, reduce latency, you know, kind of be a more modern protocol for a more modern web. Uh, Ilya, why don't you give us kind of the big tent pole features of H two, and then we'll take a break and come back, and we'll we'll dig deep into each one.
2: All right, sure. Um, so, let's see where to start. Um, so we talked about uh, the fact that everything in HTTP one is kind uh, of has a serial request response model, and that was one of the main things that we wanted to address with HTTP2. Uh, we know that in HTTP1 world, we also had these six connections, and we, want, we don't want that either. So uh, the first premise that uh, HTTP2 started with, in Speedy as well, is that we want to optimize and transfer everything over a single TCP connection. Like, there, should be, there shouldn't be a reason why we need multiple connections. Right? Opening multiple connections to the same server doesn't actually give you anything in terms of like throughput. Right? Uh-huh. If you, can, you can transfer everything over the same connection or six. Uh, Except that you will actually get better performance at the transport layer if you reuse the same connection. Because there's just a lot of uh, mechanisms within, like say, TCP and and other protocols that are optimized for um, making the best use of available bandwidth. So one TCP connection uh, is is the start. And then if you have one TCP connection, uh, what do we need to do to actually be able to send and receive multiple requests and responses at once. So to do that, uh, we added this notion of framing, where uh, a message, so in HTTP world, a message is a collection of headers, which are just key value pairs, like get this, and you know, this header, that content length with a number, uh, and the actual payload. So a message can be split into many different frames. So for example, headers can be transferred independently of the body. And body itself can be split into many different chunks, which we kind of had before, right, with uh, chunked encoding, uh, mm-hmm. But you couldn't interleave multiple messages. Like, you couldn't say, here's a little bit of the body of the request or the response for this request that you sent, and here is the other uh, bit for the, another request. Like, you, you, you couldn't interleave those. Uh, and that's what uh, binary framing provides. It introduces this notion of a stream ID. So in HTTP2 world, requests are... Uh, We refer to them as streams. So you open multiple streams to the server, and each one of those streams carries, say, HTTP headers and GET headers for all of your requests. Uh, The server receives all of those streams. Each stream has an ID, and it just starts generating responses. And in order to send data back, it just packages each chunk of data and, and appends that stream ID plus some other metadata and sends it back to the server. And now all of a sudden, because we can split these messages into smaller chunks, we can actually interleave them. So say you get two requests and one is for, uh, I don't know, a CSS file and another one for an image. You start sending the CSS file because it's the most uh, it's, it has a higher priority, which is something that the client communicated to you. But then the server blocked. Maybe your application is kind of slow. So then the server can say, okay, well, I'll pause that and I'll start sending you the, the image data. And then once the CSS data once is available once again, it resumes that. So now that this data can flow over a single connection, it can be prioritized. Uh, we no longer need multiple connections. Right? Everything is just transferred within uh, the same stream. So that's multiplexing and prioritizations. And prioritization. Um, another thing that was added. Uh, now that we have this notion of streams, is uh, flow control. So if you're familiar with things like TCP flow control, this is a similar thing, but it allows you to um, express things like. Um, I want to receive, so here's a request, here's a stream, and I'm willing to receive up to X many bytes of the stream. And then um, I will tell you when to resume it. And this is kind of cool because that actually opens up new opportunities for the client and server to interact in ways which it couldn't before. For example, uh, say images, right? Uh, many, or not many, some image formats allow progressive rendering where you can fetch a little bit of the file and you can render a preview of the image.
1: Uh
2: Uh, Well, before, we had to fetch basically the entire image and then display it. Now, with something like Flow Control, we can say, well, I have a lot of very important things I need to fetch, uh, but I also want to render a preview of the image because that would help me get the page displayed to the user more quickly. So I'm willing to accept, like, 10 kilobytes of the image, because that's sufficient for me to render a preview. But then after that, I want all the other more important stuff. And then uh, once I receive that, I can resume that stream and receive the rest of the image. So this is fundament- so this is something that is fundamentally new and previously not possible. Uh, and HTTP2 provides that. Um, and then uh, the other interesting feature that was added is uh, server push. So the idea here is Today, in HTTP 1, you send the request and you get a response. And there's a one-to-one correlation. Uh, But what if the server could actually send you back multiple responses? And concretely, the use case case here is you send a request for, let's say, a page, uh, about.html. And then we send you back the HTML. And you immediately come back to us and say, well, yes, I also want the style sheet that you declared in in that file. Uh, But the server already knew that. Like the, the server could know already know about that, so why can't it just say, uh, "Here's the index.html file, and by the way, I know that you will also need the style file or the style sheet file, so here it is as well." So like, don't waste the round trip. There's absolutely no reason to block on a round trip. I know you will need this, so please have it. And uh, this sounds kind of crazy, but we've actually been already using this. This is what inlining does, right? Because when you inline right. the contents of a file, you're effectively yeah. saying. Don't, don't come back and ask me for this. Like I know you will need this, so here, just have it. Uh, so it effectively formalizes and enables this sort of interaction at the protocol layer, which is nice because one of the side effects of inlining is that you, yeah. yeah, you can't cache it independently. right? Mm-hmm. And so now you're inflating the size of the other file. It has problems with prioritization or you can't prioritize it. You have to invalidate it more frequently, so push enables that which is uh, really cool and once again it's kind of a new capability that we just didn't have access to before so some of these features are kind of direct um, they're directly address the limitations of the previous uh, limitations of the, of the protocol and some of these features just enable fundamentally new patterns of interaction between the client and server that I think uh, we're yet to explore uh, really effectively and we'll, we'll talk about I guess, the adoption and the, the current state of servers uh, a little bit later. But I think there's just a lot of room for innovation for how we deliver web applications with HTTP2.
0: Good deal. That's definitely a, a good overview of HTTP2. Uh, we'll break here. And
2: we'll Actually, dive. You know uh, There's I one more, isn't there? I, yes, there's, there's one more. One more thing. There's just one more one thing. More. <laughs> I almost forgot. Header compression. So we, I mentioned that this is a separate specification, and uh, the problem that this was trying to address is that HTTP/1 allows you to transfer data in compressed form. For example, you can gzip your content, uh, your text content, right, which is very nice because it just so happens that gzip is very effective at compressing text content, typically reducing it its file size uh, by like thirty to eighty uh, percent, which is huge savings. But the problem is that the actual metadata about the request, things like your headers, your cookies, and all the rest, was always transferred uncompressed. Mm -hmm. And uh, over time, because we rely so much on headers and cookies and other things, this stuff has kind of accrued, and we're now sending sometimes megabytes of header metadata. I was recently looking at one website, which had a lot of um, analytics and other beacons, that during a single page load, it was generating one megabyte of traffic of just uncompressed HTTP headers. What? Which That's crazy? Blew How you do my that? mind. I
1: mean, the cookies are maxed out at a certain size, right?
2: Uh, yeah, different browsers actually have different ways to enforce it. But you know, if you send enough requests, <laughs> it all adds up pretty quickly. It turns out that on average, the request response, even without cookies, uh, adds about eight hundred bytes of metadata, which doesn't seem like much. But then you have to multiply it by you know, a couple hundred requests right. per page. And then if you, if you do add cookies, you're very quickly approaching you know, some pretty significant territory, like hundreds of kilobytes. So uh, header compression was our way to address that, to say like, we, we should be able to compress this. And that's what HPAC is. Now, HPAC actually provides uh, two different mechanisms. One is uh, it uses Huffman coding. To, with a static dictionary just to compress value. So you just give it a string and there's a predefined dictionary which is used to compress uh, these transferred data. And then uh, the other mechanism it has is that it, the client and server keep state about what data has been exchanged. So think of something like, uh, say, the user agent header, right? Uh, which is kind of this long string which describes the vaguely describes, I should say, the user agent uh, and some properties about the device that data does not change between requests right but in http1 we keep sending it on every single request which adds hundreds of bytes of data so with http2 uh, the way it works is you just send it once that goes into uh, what we call a dynamic table uh, which basically just remembers that okay this this thing has been sent and it's let's say its id is 55 so next next time on the next request i can just say 55 and you immediately know that oh Okay, you you want to communicate that you you're also sending this header, so that significantly reduces uh, the amount of metadata that's being transferred. Uh, We're talking by a couple of orders of magnitude, where the uh, the lowest uh, overhead of a HTTP/2 stream now is about nine bytes, uh, as compared to say nine hundred, yeah, nine hundred bytes with HTTP/1, uh, which makes it very appealing for. Uh, many other use cases. Uh, HTTP2 or HTTP in general is very popular outside of browsers as well, API traffic um, and all the rest. And But what one of the issues has been kind of this high overhead of HTTP headers. And with HTTP2, that's no longer a concern. So you can actually use it for uh, much and many other uh, use cases.
0: Good deal. So uh, you got one TCP connection, you got request and stream... With uh, multiplex and prioritized uh, streams, binary framing layer, header compression, also known as HPAC. That sort of comprises HTTP2 uh, in sort of one whack there. Let's take a break, real quick. We'll come back um, and talk more deeply about each of these sections here, but we'll hear from a sponsor and we bring it back. DreamHost now has managed VPS hosting built for speed and scalability, including solid-state drives, and that's awesome. These VPSs are built for open-source developers and now include one-click installs of Node.js, custom Ruby, and RVM support. Speed, speed, and more speed is what it's all about. Their VPS servers use SSD hard drives and are 20% faster than traditional SATA drives. All virtual private servers from DreamHost include SSD storage, Ubuntu 1204 LTS, web-based control panel, scalable RAM, which is super awesome. You can go from 1 gig of RAM and easily scale up to 8 gigs if you need it, Node.js one-click install, Ruby version manager, unlimited bandwidth, unlimited hosted domains, unlimited 24-7 support. Go check them out and learn more at dreamhost.com slash the changelog. All right, we're back. And uh, so deep dive here on all the details of HTTP2. I think the next question really is where from here. We got server support, browser support, security concerns. Where is the best place to start with the how HTTP two actually becomes a thing to to developers out there?
1: Let's start with how you uh, how it's implemented and how a conversation between a client and server goes from H one to H two, and if they're just how does that all work, Elia?
2: Right. So the upgrade cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this will take a, a short detour into the security discussion as well, or not security, TLS in particular. Uh-huh. Uh, so in order to upgrade to HTTP2, we have to somehow figure out if the client and server support it, right? Previously, we've just assumed that HTTP1. Uh, now we need to somehow figure that out. And ideally, we'd like to do that with without any additional latency, because that would kind of defeat the whole purpose <laughs> of <laughs> doing the performance optimization. Uh, So uh, it turns out HTTP actually provides uh, some mechanisms to do upgrade and negotiation, so there's this upgrade flow. Uh, But uh, for some interesting reasons, that is actually not practically useful for HTTP2 in particular. Uh, One of the things we we learned when we first started experimenting with Speedy uh, was that there's a lot of existing middleware on the web uh, things like proxies, even antivirus software running on users' computers, and other things that are looking at the flows uh, over port 80 as they, as they happen. And uh, oftentimes, they, when they detect something that doesn't smell like HTTP 1 or something that they don't understand, they assume that it's either bad, malformed, or malicious, and just shut it down. Uh, and this is actually not new. Uh, we actually had the same experience with WebSockets, mm-hmm. because they also flow over port 80. And uh, it turns out that if you try to deploy WebSockets over just unencrypted connections, uh, oftentimes things just fail, and you have no idea why they fail. It just for some reason the connection is aborted, or it hangs, or something else. Uh, but then you switch that same connection into 443, or you run it over TLS, and everything's fine. So in practice, you'll find that today the best practice for deploying WebSockets is over TLS. And we ran into the same issue with Speedy, where uh, we you know we would try to make connections over. The unencrypted uh, channel, and sometimes these things would just fail. And like 20 to 30% of the time, connections would just fail, which is obviously unacceptable, right? If you try to browse the web, like imagine trying to open Google, and 20 to 30% of the time, a third of the time, uh, it just fails. Like that, that, that's just not going to happen.
0: Bad UX. Right. For sure.
2: Uh, that, that's more than bad UX. That's just like we, we failed the
1: user, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, bad that's what bad I, meant. Bad. I mean, it's just a horrible all around. It's, that's no UX. Right. right exactly. There's no experience. So, yet. Like
2: for that reason alone, uh, we had to deploy Speedy over HTTPS because it provides an end to end encrypted tunnel, which means that these intermediaries and other things uh, just see encrypted data flow and encrypted data flow, they they all look the same. uh, So they can't really choke on it or do bad things to it. And it turns out that uh, that same reasoning applies to HTTP2. So there's the, the spec itself does not mandate that you use HTTPS. It actually provides mechanisms for you to uh, use HTTP2 over unencrypted connections, and you can certainly do that. Uh, But the browsers that have implemented HTTP2, uh, which are Chrome and Firefox have already shipped support for HTTP2, uh, have said that they will only do HTTP2 over HTTPS on the public web.
1: Why the discrepancy between the spec and the implementations?
2: Uh, well, so, so the spec just says, like, that there's no reason... Say you're in a controlled environment. Say you have two servers that you control, and you control the path between them. Uh, there's no reason for the spec to mandate HTTPS from that Makes perspective. Yeah. And we know that HTTPS is being used in a variety of different environments. Now, you know, as, as a, with my security hat on, I will tell you that even though you think uh, you have a clear path, you should still use HTTPS between your server-to-server communication or some sort of encrypted tunnel. Uh, because we know that you know malicious people do malicious things, and they sniff on traffic, and they will they can do things, bad things with that traffic. Never heard of so it. So sh- yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you heard here first, Fox. Um <laughs> Use encrypted connections. Uh, it's a good thing, uh, but at the same time, like th- th- there's no reason, there's no fundamental reason why we need to require that, right? So the spec right. says yes, you can use it, but in practice, on the web, if you want to deploy it, uh, you need HTTPS. and further, the browsers will only. Uh, negotiate HTTP2 over TLS. And now the question is, okay, so now that we have TLS tunnel, how do we actually know that the client and server support HTTP2 in particular? And uh, there, there's actually a mechanism called AL- ALPN negotiation, which is the, uh, which is used to ne- negotiate which protocols are supported during the TLS handshake. So, you said
0: ALPN?
2: That's right. ALPN, okay. Um, so what happens there is when the client sends uh, starts the establishment of the secure channel, uh, the client and server negotiate the parameters for the secure connection, things like what kind of crypto are you going to use and other stuff. And as part of that handshake, there's now an extension that negotiates, or rather the client advertises which protocols it supports. And then and the, one of those protocols is HTTP2, if you support it. And then the server sees that and it can uh, confirm that and say, okay, well, I also support HTTP2, so I will be talking to you in HTTP2. So this negotiation happens as part of the TLS handshake, and this is important because it does not add extra latency. So if you're uh, using HTTPS already, uh, that would happen over TLS, the negotiation bit. And then your server would just automatically know to encode frames with HTTP form, HTTP2 format as opposed to HTTP. And this is great because uh, it actually makes the whole thing transparent. Uh, like the, the server can take care of all, of all of those details for you, and there's no extra latency.
1: So just as a quick aside, certain people would complain about the practical uh, requirement of HTTPS to, Mm -hmm. to, you know, because it raises the barrier to entry on the web. It costs money at least until the FF gets their thing rolling. Uh, It complicates things. I'm, you know, uh, it's a hobby project. It's my blog. I don't need security. What do you say to that?
2: Oh, well, that's, That's a very long discussion. So, in practice, (laughs) make it quick. (laughs) Yeah, there's no there's no such thing as insensitive traffic on the web. Uh, You can a malicious observer can infer a lot about your behaviors based on uh, navigation patterns of things that you may not consider to be sensitive, but which in fact leak information about you, those around you, and, and all the rest. So, the the argument of oh, but I'm just navigating, like, I'm just serving a a personal blog uh, does not stand uh, in my books. And, you know, many different people have made very good arguments in both directions. I happen to be on the side that, like, I believe that we should encrypt all of these things because the the incidentary uh, kind of damage of revealing all of these bits adds up. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can infer a lot about the user and their intent uh, just by observing these uh, traffic patterns. Yeah. So then there is the questions, the practical concerns over how does this affect my performance? Uh, Obviously, doing crypto requires more work than not doing crypto. So how expensive is that? It turns out that a decade ago, that was actually very expensive. Modern CPUs are optimized to uh, execute crypto very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't need dedicated hardware for that sort of thing. You did before. Uh, For example, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all the big companies run uh, TLS purely in software, like where we're not buying additional hardware. Um, and further, actually, as an interesting side effect of deploying things like speed in HP 2 because we require far fewer connections, it actually can decrease your operational costs. Because you have to maintain fewer sockets, you have to do fewer handshakes, and handshakes are actually the most expensive part of TLS. So uh, we've seen studies uh, where if you run a load test against an HTTP1 server and then enable HTTP2, the resource usage is actually lower because of, of all the things we just mentioned. Uh-huh. So uh, yes, there are costs to it. Uh, the, the whole certificate question, it, you know, it depends on what kind of certificate you need, whether uh-huh. you need um, to support older browsers or not, and um, in, in all the rest. So yes, uh-huh. it, adds, it adds a bit more complexity, but practically speaking, it is a requirement because we're just not willing to accept 30%
1: failure rate. Right on. So while we're talking complexity and knee-jerk reactions, um, I admit that I had a knee-jerk reaction around the binary framing layer when I first heard about it. Um, being a fan of HTTP and the plain text aspect of it, and of course a binary communication uh, protocol doesn't doesn't let you just see what's going on down the wire. I'm sure you've had that uh, come at you. What do you say about People that complain about that particular aspect of H two,
2: sure, sure. So, so I think there's a couple of different perspectives that we should untangle. There, one is implementation. The second, one is kind of observability, right? Mm-hmm. As, as a user, so it turns out that implementation-wise, binary protocols are actually simpler and easier to implement correctly. Um, I happen to have some experience with implementing both. Um, I've implemented both HP two and http one uh, in Ruby, uh, and from my own experience I can tell you that parsing text protocols which have kind of very ambiguous semantics about things where they terminate how they terminate and all the rest okay. uh, is much harder than a length prefixed binary protocol which is very particular right it just says how many bytes I'm going to send you and then the type of frame and you have specific rules for how to parse the data so in practice it's actually easier to implement binary protocols uh, it is more provably correct in the sense that there's far fewer edge cases that you have to consider. Mm-hmm. And performance-wise, uh, because you're twiddling bits, is actually better as well for the server. Because now you don't, you're not parsing strings, you're parsing just bits, bits and bytes. Right. Uh, so that's, that's the implementation bits. There are other uh, implementation concerns uh, with things like HPAC and all the rest, and there's more complexity on the server in terms of dealing with priorities, but that's kind of a separate discussion. And then from the observability part, um, I am sympathetic to the use case of, well, I just want to open Telnet and type in get and make the request or like right. observe it. Uh, but realistically, I don't think that's a, that's a very compelling use case or very common at that. And uh, if you need observability, then it's just a question of tooling. Like Maybe we just need better tools. We, we already have great plugins for Wireshark uh, that will parse all the binary data and show you all of the, all the things that you're used to. Similarly, if you open, say, Chrome DevTools or any DevTools in any browser, uh, it doesn't matter where you're, whether you're running over HTTP1 or HTTP2. Like, all of it is already parsed, and you can see all the data there. Right uh, and further, like if you use TLS, then that's already binary framing, right? Like so, uh, there's nothing new here. Uh, it's just a question of tooling, and it like I do see some kind of short-term pain where we go from something that was easily inspectable because you could just run uh, like a grep on, on a stream, right, uh, to something that needs to take the stream, parse it, and then grep it. Uh, but that's I think that's very easily solved.
0: So it's essentially. It sounds like the binary framing layer has allowed you to provide a more testable, provable method to do it, rather than with text-based, where before it had more edge cases that to, to work around and more potential to fail.
2: Yep. Exactly.
0: Yep. Uh, we talked about security. We talked about uh, several things. Does it make sense to dive into the HPAC whatsoever? I know there was kind of two components to that. We talked a bit a bit about that, but not quite that deeply on how that changes the headers to the fact that it's got the frame layer and the data, the header frame and then the data frame.
1: I think that particular aspect is most interesting to implementers. Um, as a user, I'm more thinking about how do I use this? You know, who's using this, what's the upgrade process, how does it implement how does it Impact browser clients and server clients um, maybe we can go there, Ilya, and talk about adoption and who's adopting it, how it's rolling out, and then how how do we adopt it? Sure,
2: yeah, so I guess let's start at the beginning with, with the spec itself. So the spec has been finalized, it's been published as RFC, so I believe it's is it RFC 7440 and 7541? I Think that's correct? So that's, that's out in the wild um, as of uh, a month ago. Back in February, uh, Firefox was the first browser to enable HTTP2 uh, in their stable browser. So if you're using Firefox um, and you're talking to a server that is capable of talking HTTP2, then you're already talking HTTP2, which is great. Uh, Chrome has already also enabled support. That was shortly after Firefox. So both browsers support HTTP2 in stable today. Um, IE has indicated that they will ship HTTP2 support. And actually, actually, let, let me make that stronger. So IE, their new browser, um, Edge, is shipping with Windows 10, uh-huh. uh, which is coming out, I believe, at the end of July. I want to say 29th of July. And Edge supports HTTP2. So as of early August, you can get your hands on our users. Real users will start getting their hands on on stable version of Windows Windows 10, which will have Edge, which will talk HTTP 2. Ah. Uh, Safari also supports Speedy. Uh, Safari, or Apple in general, does not generally comment on their plans, uh, but there's no absolutely no reason to believe that they will not support HTTP 2 uh, sooner rather than later. And in fact, uh, because we do not want uh, Maintain, to maintain both protocols, Speedy and HTTP2, and we want to move people towards HTTP2, Chrome has actually announced that we will deprecate Speedy in Chrome uh, in early 2016, uh, which is kind of a nudge to the community to say that, like, hey, you've deployed Speedy, and, but there's a better thing and an official thing called HTTP2, so let's move over there. So there's kind of this year grace period where we've more or less formalized HTTP2 to deprecating Speedy. Uh, so that's client support. Uh, there's also a growing and a good list of implementations uh, for http 2 at, at for, for various languages. So kind of libraries and, and all the rest. Uh, if you go to the H- if you just search for http 2 wiki, uh, you will come to a GitHub site that has a list of implementations. And and maybe we can share that in the notes afterwards.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so you, you'll find, I think, most every popular language you'll find support for it.
0: Is that htb2.github.io? is that the one you're talking about
2: yep that's the one and then at the top there you will see a link to implementations yes, and that contains a table it is just a, a wiki page on github that uh, uh-huh. contains the list so you know if you're working on on an implementation, uh, please do add it there so that's uh, so let's see that's that's client uh, in terms of servers uh, there are some really good implementations out there already, so uh, there is a, there are a number of big sites that have enabled it on their servers. So uh, Twitter, Google, uh, Facebook, uh, a bunch of others. Uh, there are also open source implementations. So uh, coming out of this whole HTTP where there's actually a couple of new servers that have merged. For example, ng, HTTP, and H2O, uh, both built by the HTTP2 community in uh, in Japan. Uh, they're very good. What was the
1: second one, Ilya? Uh, H2O h2o yep. some high quality
2: h2o nice yep yep and they're they're actually they're very good you can de- you can try and deploy them today uh, or you can play with them rather uh, and there is support coming to kind of more popular uh, servers as well so Nginx has announced that uh, they will support uh, http 2 or they will they will add support for http 2 sometime in I think q3 or q4 of this year so they support speedy today but that will be replaced with HTTP2. That's a big um, one. Yep. Uh, Varnish uh, said that they're working, and that's likely coming kind of in early 2016. That's my understanding. Uh, then there is uh, Apache Traffic Server already supports HTTP2. Uh, there is a couple of modules for Apache that implement HTTP2. So, um, well, what else? Uh, Node, there's there's good implementations for HTTP2. Uh, I mentioned that I, I built a Ruby version. Uh, it's a library, not a server, but you can build a, or a client or server with it. So all that to say, like the support is coming, it's growing. The client support is there. The servers are coming online. Uh, there's lots of usage of it on the web today already, which I think is really important to note. Uh, HTTP2 is not some kind of like newfangled thing that has not been tested. Uh, recall the fact that Speedy has been been in development in parallel with hp2 and effectively uh, we've been testing all of these ideas for a very long time for like five years plus so uh, a significant portion of the traffic on the web today is already using hp2 and this is a very well tested uh, protocol so it's safe to deploy and production
1: ready awesome well i think we will take a break here and we come back we'll talk about straddling the line between h1 and h2 and also if you're interested in the nitty gritty details, how you can learn more, let's take a break and we'll be right back. All right, put them away, put them back, put the books back on the shelf. If you don't need
0: them and learn to code by doing with code School. code School offers a variety of courses, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, Ruby, iOS, Git, and many, many more to help you expand your skills and learn new technologies. Code School knows that learning to code can be a daunting task, and they have combined experienced instructors with proven learning techniques to make coding educational and memorable. It gives you the confidence you need to continue past those rough, tough hurdles that you will definitely face learning to code. Code School also knows that languages are a moving target. They're always updating their content to give you the latest and the greatest learning resources. You can even try before you buy. Roughly one out of every five courses. On code school is absolutely and totally free this includes instructor cl- classes on git ruby jquery and much more which allow free members to play full courses with coding challenges all included you can also pay as you go one monthly fee gives you access to every code school course and if you ever need a breather take a break you can suspend your account at any time don't worry your account history your points your badges they'll all be there when you're ready to pick things up again Get started on sharpening your skills today at CodeSchool.com. Once again, that is CodeSchool.com.
1: All right, we are back. We are talking with Ilya Grigorik about HTTP2, a.k.a. H2, a.k.a. the new hotness in <laughs> web performance. Um, it's here. It's arrived. The spec is finalized. Support is coming. H1's going to be around for a long time, isn't it? It's not going anywhere.
2: Nope, nope. We're not going to full-on it's, replace It's with it. us for a while.
1: But the nice news is, is that as um, people that deploy websites, it doesn't matter too much because we can just wait for the client to say they support uh, the new hotness and then just kind of upgrade them and not worry about anything else. Is there anything at an application level? I mean, server push I thought maybe would play in, but really that's just like pushing assets. It's not like uh, server push as opposed to long polling. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything at the application level, somebody who's building a web app, that, they'd have, that they could like, leverage in H2 feature-wise?
2: Uh, yeah, definitely. There's, it comes back to the question of whether and what you can do to optimize for HTTP2. Right? So we, mm-hmm. we said earlier that any application will continue to work over HTTP2. So if you just uh, deploy a new server that happens to talk HTTP2, everything will just work. Right. Then the question becomes, can I make it better? And the answer is there is probably most definitely yes, and this is where we have to get into a whole separate discussion about like let's reexamine some of our existing yeah. uh, in air quotes best practices to uh, revisit them and, and see if we can undo some of that damage <laughs> so uh, i don't think we have enough time to get into all of these, but things like domain charting is and clearly an anti pattern on uh, on h p two so you want to avoid that, and there's actually some uh, good and nifty tricks that will allow you to do that without changing anything in your application. Um, So I'll I'll just, I have a a resource that talks about that in particular that we'll mention later. Uh, Then there's concatenation. So you can actually start undoing some of that. And then the question becomes like, well, if I want to optimize for both protocols because I have clients in in both camps, how do I do that? And I think the practical answer there is uh, you can make it arbitrarily complex in the sense that you can actually say, well, uh, I know which protocol the client negotiated, so I'll serve one version of a website here and another version of a website there. Perhaps it's a little too involved. I think a more interesting question now becomes like, maybe there's a happy middle. Uh, as more and more users migrate toward HTTP2, I think you will see a very quick rise in adoption of HTTP2 in terms of capabilities. Uh-huh. I think the server, basically by the end of this year, we'll have very good server support I expect very good client support as well. And at that point, if majority of the user users are on HTTP two, I think you, I think that should be sufficient to nudge most websites to say, well, now we're willing to sacrifice some of the performance in HTTP one without adding too much complexity in our in, in our actual development process, in order to optimize for HTTP two. So perhaps uh-huh. we'll undo some of the concatenation. Maybe we won't ship a hundred files, but we can now consider sending ten files, right? Uh, which may have some slightly negative repercussions for HTTP 1, but it makes things much better because we can do caching and all these other things. Uh, Similar things with server push. Uh, There is lots of cool opportunities there for total automation. So one cool example is uh, Jetty. Uh, Jetty, uh, Java HTTP web server, uh, has had support for HTTP 2 for a long time. And they actually have this really cool mode where the server observes the requests that come in. So say uh, the client requests the index file, and then, it, and then the client also comes back and asks, asks the CSS file and JavaScript file. Uh, there's a refer header that it can use to infer um, kind of that map of, well, you asked this, and then you came back for these other things. It observes that traffic pattern and then automatically starts server push for future clients. Mm-hmm. So you, as a developer, don't have to do anything. The server just takes care of all of, all of these things. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in that space. Uh, There's new uh, capabilities in terms of like, well, can you push uh, cache invalidations? So if I told you to cache something for a year, uh, can I push a record that says, well, please delete that out of your cache? Uh, So I think those are the new and interesting things that we're still yet to explore. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're in pretty good shape.
1: Awesome. So I think by now, our listeners are probably in two camps. Camp one is thinking... HTTP 2 sounds awesome. I can't wait till NGINX supports it, so I just get better performance kind of out of the box uh, for my web app. And then Camp 2 is probably like, I want to dig in. I want to understand HPAC. I want to understand server push and the binary framing and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for the second group, we have good news with regards to your book, High Performance Browser Networking. You want to tell us about that?
2: Yeah. Uh, So that's a book I've been working on or worked on with O'Reilly uh it's available today um, and the book actually came out let's see a year and a half ago and in the original version, I talked about the earlier drafts of h t p two and speedy and I recently updated that so the print version does not have the latest content uh but the good news is that you can go online and read the uh up to date content for free in your web browser uh and you can find it at um h p b n dot co and if you just add slash hp2 you can just go to the chapter directly or you can just scan through the entire book and it covers all the things we talked about here but probably much more coherently and uh, in more detail so you can learn about kind of all the nitty-gritty of the protocol and there's also a follow-up section on well now that we have this how can we what should we revisit and how can we optimize our applications
1: Awesome. So we'll link that up in the show notes. And you did hear him right. The print version's not up to date. So whatever you do, don't buy the book. <laughs> <Just, laughs> Riley will be really happy with that message.
2: Yeah. So I, sh- I should say, uh, we've been updating. So th- the beauty about writing technical books is they go out of date the moment you hit publish. So I've been updating the content kind of in, in small and incremental bits ever since it was published. And we've actually released updates, print updates since then, uh, and the HP 2 one is just much newer, so it hasn't yet made it into the print version. So if you were to buy a copy today when we we're recording this, it wouldn't have the, the latest HP 2 But the plan is to definitely have it there.
0: And you mentioned potentially even like a smaller volume just for these, this new protocol coming in place and sort of diving deep into that.
2: That's right. Actually, if you go to the O'Reilly website and you search for HTTP2, uh, they published the the new chapter, the new HTTP2 chapter as a separate ebook. So if you just want to read that, you can get that as a a Kindle PDF or one of whatever version you prefer. Gotcha.
0: Well, uh, we'll definitely link up the chapter 12 is the chapter it is. So if you're on the high performance browser networking site and you're already there, then just navigate to chapter 12 and you'll see the new chapter there for HTTP2. Can you restate the, the URL that you said was the blessed one for you? Because I got the long version, which I think was a redirect. Are you tracking that or something like that?
2: Uh, yeah, it's it just, it just more convenient. It's a shortened version. So it's HPBN, which is the High Performance Browser Networking. It's just the first letters of the book. Uh, .co. Slash HP2. Yep, and that should take you to, I guess, Chapter 12.
0: Gotcha. Perfect. Well, Jerry, what else we got to cover? I know we talked about pretty much everything. Um, I think the only thing we didn't talk about really was was uh, something that was sort of off-topic, but sort of in this camp to a degree, which was, Ilya, your focus on time to glass. And uh, Jared and I, before the call, we talked about time to glass. And I was like, well, what is what is time to glass, Jared? Do you know what this is? This is a term you've heard before. And, Jared, what did you say? Uh, Google Glass.
1: Time to Google, Google Glass. glass. <laughs> How
0: to get our websites onto Google Glass
1: faster than exactly. like he thought it was. <laughs> So, how long it takes someone to buy Google Glass? That's your time to glass.
2: Yeah, I think today um, that's pretty long. I think It's <laughs> yeah. quite, quite the wait list. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, I mean, we talked heavily about H two and what that's bringing. We talked quite a bit about on the line and and uh, what your suspected best practice is to support H two and H one at the same time, which is to you know sort of monitor your your usage, and as the number teeters more towards H two, support more performance uh, enhancements for, that are prescribed by H2 versus H1. But what is this 1,000 milliseconds time-to-glass challenge that, uh, that was in one of your slides as you talked about H2?
2: Uh, sure. So the, the general premise is that we want to make pages visible or respond to user input within less than a second. And that means, like, from the moment that you type in a URL to, to you hitting enter, regardless of what type of network you're on, whether you're on a mobile phone uh, with a crappy connection or on a fast gigabit connection, you should have something visible to you within a second. And uh, if you accept that as a challenge, then it becomes a question of, well, okay, so what are the mechanics behind that? Like, if you factor in all the latencies for setting up a connection and re- making the request and getting a response, uh, you very quickly arrive uh, at the conclusion that you actually don't have a lot of time. Like, a second seems like a long, a lot of time, but it's actually not very much. Like it, it puts very hard constraints on how quickly your server has to respond, how you structure your pages, and uh, a lot of other details. And actually, if, if you're curious about this particular topic, I'll, uh, I'll do another plug. Um, I actually have a Udacity course, uh, which it's probably take you a couple of hours to go through, but we kind of talk through in great detail about how the browser actually constructs a page, like from receiving the first HTML bytes to parsing CSS and executing JavaScript, like what does that pipeline look? And what do you need to think about to allow the browser to paint something very quickly? Because you can take the same page with the same assets and you can make it block and not render anything for like arbitrarily long, say five or ten seconds. Right. And you can make the same page render something very quickly, but then continue progressively adding content uh, later. And that and the latter is the behavior that we want to enable. So this is both On the browser, like there's lots of things that the browser has to do to make this happen, but also on the developer. Because there are certain things that you do that the browser just can't work around.
0: And the reason why it's accompanied in your HTTP2 talks is because a lot of this is really depending upon this entire conversation we just had, which was H2 being more supported. And that's going to, like getting to one second on H1 is probably a lot harder or near impossible,
2: but right, H2 makes right. it more possible. Yeah, exactly. That, so that's a question about uh, like, I need to fetch this many assets and only have this much time, uh, but HP2 or HP1 places strict uh, restrictions on how many things I can fetch in parallel. So that prohibits me from, say, hitting that goal. Whereas with HP2, we can actually work around a lot of those things, or rather, not work around. HP2 fixes all of those things.
0: And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring that into – I know it's sort of slightly off-topic and in addition to the conversation we just had, but if you've been following along in Change Law Weekly, which we ship out every Saturday, the last two weeks we've uh, we've talked about this time-to-glass uh, term, and one of them linked to something you had done, Ilya, I can't recall the link but um, to, to recommend right now, but I'll put it in the show notes for those listening and even to the issues of weekly, but – um, I wanted to bring that up since you were here on the show. We talked about time to glass recently in Change Law Weekly. So for those listeners that read that email once every week, uh sort of closes some of the gap on on the term itself and what that means for H2 and getting closer to one second what or one thousand milliseconds or one second time to glass.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting topic if you're uh interested in kind of web web development in general, but also just uh performance. Because it turns out that a lot of um, a lot of use cases right now are driven by mobile, which places a lot of restrictions on latency and also emerging markets. So there's explosive growth in terms of number of users coming online in places like India, Brazil, and Russia and everywhere else. And networks are kind of slow there. And they're also expensive. And we need to think really, really carefully about how we build pages and all the rest. So that's that's probably enough uh, of material there to like talk about on another three episodes.
0: Yes, uh, actually, uh, it. I went back and looked episode fifty-four, or sorry, issue fifty-four of Change Law Weekly. We actually linked to this chapter twelve that we just been talking about here. So that was the one link. The other one was talking about rails and turbo links and how mm-hmm. turbo links aren't as bad as everyone says they are. The Rails Community <laughs> has been seeing this all along. And, and bonus, we actually linked out to your talk on breaking the. Right. 1,000 millisecond time to glass mobile barrier, which mm-hmm. is what we've been talking about here. So yep, there you go. Circle completed. But well, yeah, it's definitely fun having you back for for three times. We'll get your jacket out to you soon enough, uh, so you can wear that with pride. It's got the Change Log emblem on there, and it's got "I've been on the Change Log three times" on the back. You can wear it to the office or local meetups, whatever you know. Sweet, whatever, whatever tickles your fancy on that part there. Uh, Jared, any thoughts on the closing here?
1: No, just uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. We really enjoyed it. I've been interested in the innards of what's coming on down the pipeline with H two for a while, so I'm glad we got the chat.
0: Good deal. All right, well, that's uh, that is the show. And for now, let's say goodbye, everybody. See you.
2: See you. Thanks.